He is more than a story. He is more than a comic book superhero. He is more than a symbol of hope. He represents our greatest aspirations. He is everything we think we can be. And yet, even with all the strength and all the power in all of the world, he may not be able to meet his greatest challenges and redeem his family's legacy. For he is the son of El. Chapter 1 A Kid in Smallville Clark had no choice but to get out of bed when his ma gave up calling him from the kitchen and instead knocked on his bedroom door. Are you alright, Clark? Are you having trouble with your clothes? He looked around his room and spotted his clothing. Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks, Ma. Martha had laid them out for him as she did every night. They were rather basic clothes. A t-shirt and overalls, something he couldn't so easily rip while putting on, and big enough to fit his mature frame. He was a large young man with wavy black hair and bright blue eyes that contrasted with his deep tan complexion. After getting himself dressed, he found that his bedroom door, as usual, had been left cracked open. This was all a part of the household routine, intended to help him not rip the knob off the door. Doorknobs seemed so flimsy to Clark. The whole world was fragile to him. Each morning, he took a breath at the top of the stairs and assured himself he would not break the banister on the way down. It had been a long while since he had last broken it, and though he didn't necessarily need to hold on to it to get down the stairs, he kept up the practice to prove to himself that he was capable of this simple task. His whole life was centered around not causing any unnecessary destruction. It was a curse Clark lived with, caused by a tragedy he preferred not to dwell on. The explanation given to him as he was growing up was sparse in detail. He'd been the only survivor of a car accident that killed his parents. Found completely unscathed after the tragedy, Martha always put it, I can only imagine that whatever angel saved you must have accidentally given you their powers by mistake. Every time she said this, his pa, Jonathan, would immediately intone the same lesson. It's a serious responsibility to receive the strength you've been given, Clark. Jonathan always said this with intense gravity. He was a stern but loving grandfather. When Clark's parents died, the Kents took him in as his closest relatives. They hadn't been especially close before then, but they were close enough to adopt the boy as their grandson while they were going into their late 40s. Through his childhood, Clark was constantly reminded of how critical it was that he be responsible with his strength. The rate that Clark seemed to destroy all he touched seemed out of his control in his youth, yet surely went down over time. The current banister was old enough to start having a patina. Getting to the bottom of the stairs, banister intact, Clark found Martha back in the kitchen. She danced about the room packing his lunch. As soon as he sat down, she set his plate of bacon and eggs in front of him. Jonathan, as usual, was already out working the farm. While Clark ate, Martha began talking almost immediately. She was excited about their busy week, mentioning how he needed to size his gown for his high school graduation. Without realizing it, Clark channeled his nervousness through his fork, breaking his plate straight down the middle. Martha swooped in, transferring his breakfast to a new plate and disposing of the old broken pieces. She executed the movement with the precision of a well-practiced routine. Clark mumbled an apology, but Martha paid no mind. 
for not the first time. He suggested they might as well give him paper plates, but Martha insisted. Meals are nice around ceramic. For her, Clark's enjoyment was worth any amount of broken plates. They weren't expensive, and she reminded him that it had been over a month since he had last broken one. Clark wasn't so sure of that, but he ate the rest of his breakfast without mentioning it. On the way out of the house to drive Clark to school, they passed Jonathan, straining to change a tractor tire. Clark moved toward him as though to help, but Jonathan assertively snapped. Now, now, son, I've got this. You get on to school. You would think that growing up on a prairie farm would have given Clark experience farming, but the Kents couldn't trust Clark handling the work equipment. They didn't even trust him with opening the car door. Martha would hold it open for him each day, patiently waiting for him to seat himself before closing the door behind him. There wasn't much Clark could do or say to persuade her otherwise. As Martha would put it, You're doing enough already, Clark. Clark didn't think so. Even if Martha said otherwise, he knew that was the second plate he had broken this month. Even still, his problem wasn't nearly as bad as it had been in his childhood. To have called Clark a handful as a baby would have been a tragic understatement. He would not just break his toys, Clark seemed to decimate them. Some he incinerated. Wooden blocks were particularly vulnerable. Jonathan and Martha weren't really sure how he did it, but small piles of ashes were the least of their problems. Their house had entered a state of constant repair and construction. When he was three, they discovered how much they could recover while Clark spent time playing tea party with the neighbor's daughter, Lana. They knew that when she began going to school, Clark would need to go as well. The boy needed to somehow receive an education, yet his uncontrollable strength caused him to constantly snap pencils and pens by accident. At the age of five, Clark was enlisted in a special ed class. There he was provided with writing assistance devices, like dictation recorders and a special durable keyboard that withstood his touch. The Kents instructed Clark to do just as he had done while playing next door with Lana and always keep his hands to himself. They had no actual means of controlling him, so from the youngest age, they read him scriptures from the Bible and told him parables of morality. Though Clark never fully understood many of the long-winded readings, he found a great deal of guidance from the stories the Kents related back to him. Jonathan and Martha did all they could to instill a sense of justice in Clark, explaining to him that strength should not be used against the weak. All this was emphasized before he began kindergarten. For his own part, Clark did all he could to be safe, not daring to touch anyone. He kept his arms always close to his body, though by touching no one, he came to think of himself as untouchable. The other kids didn't know what to think of Clark Kent, and the adults barely understood him any better. From when he first began grade school, they all agreed that something was off with the boy. Being exceptionally large for his age, it was often assumed he had failed his classes and was grades behind. Clark's schoolmates managed to underestimate his intelligence as well as his strength. In his first turn at plate in a game of kickball, he sent the ball to another county. The other kids didn't know where it went. Their first grade minds could not grasp what they had seen. He had simply broken the ball out of existence. Clark was just grateful the ball hadn't hit anyone. After that, he decided it was better he didn't play with the other kids, having no wish to accidentally injure someone, especially for the sake of a game. His status as an outcast was far from optional. Upon arriving each day, he endured the snickering of other kids as they watched a little old lady get out of the driver's seat, walk around the car, and open the passenger side door. Clark gingerly got out, doing his best not to damage the vehicle. 
With a brief hug and a word of encouragement, Martha was off. But Clark could barely hear her words through the feeling of embarrassment that swelled inside of him. Each morning, he fought through this sense of shame. Thankfully, it quickly all faded as he heard his name called by a familiar voice. Looking up, Clark saw his best friend and next-door neighbor, Lana Lang. It was a mystery to the other kids how it was that one of the prettiest girls at Smallville High was best friends with the oddest boy they had ever known. Where Clark would always stand away from everyone, with his arms crossed, waiting for other people to open doors for him, Lana was a warm red-headed beauty, known for her congeniality and bright green eyes. The two of them had been exceptionally close since they were toddlers. Clark would not move a muscle while Lana mimed imaginary tea parties, dressing him as she pleased, in bonnets and boas. They spent what seemed like their whole young lives casually talking in this manner. Growing up so close alongside Clark, Lana had a unique perspective of his abilities. They had discussed it a bit, though she had seen it for herself. More than one time, Lana peeked out of her cellar during a tornado and watched as Clark leapt into the winds, letting them carry him high into the sky. Up there, he could let go of himself like nowhere else. He smashed through storm debris as though it were nothing at all. This was one of the few places he could unleash his strength in a fragile world. While Clark felt his power was a curse, Lana saw his potential. In her eyes, he was always meant to be a hero. She wasn't the only one at school who admired Clark. Pete Ross followed him around devotedly ever since they were in fifth grade. Back then, Alex Peterson, Smallville Elementary School's most prominent bully, picked on everyone, especially little Petey. Alex had recently had an enormous growth spurt, and though Clark was used to seeing him bully the other kids, seeing Alex tower over Pete didn't sit right with Clark that day. He decided it was about time someone stood up to Alex Peterson. Leave Petey alone, Alex. Alex looked up with a somewhat bewildered expression. He was not used to being challenged by anyone. Seeing that it was Clark Kent was all the more surprising. Kent was a little bigger than Alex, but he usually kept to himself. Speaking up like this was out of character. Alex decided he had better deal with Clark before he got any ideas of taking over the playground. You keep out of this, Kent, or you'll be getting some next. Clark was unfazed. His mind was decided. He couldn't stand by and idly watch injustice happen. Leave Petey alone. It ain't right. You're twice his size. Clark had barely finished his sentence before Alex pivoted to punch him. And yet, to Clark's perspective, in that moment, Alex seemed to move in slow motion, as though the air had become suddenly thick. Clark had always thought the other children, and adults for that matter, moved in a way that he would describe as sluggish. But just then, as Alex lunged to hit him, the bully seemed to lose all sense of velocity. With a gesture as casual as shooing away a fly, Clark deflected Alex's blow and as immediately as time slowed down, it returned to normal, with the sudden shrill sound of Alex's scream filling the air. To Clark's and everyone else's horror, Alex's arm was deformed, and would never quite heal right again. Peterson was rushed to a nearby hospital in a neighboring town, and Clark was sent to the principal's office. From there, the Kents were called and he was sent home for the day. After a gruelingly silent car ride, Jonathan gave Clark a stern talking to. He emphasized how Clark should avoid touching anyone, especially out of anger and hate. But Clark explained he was only trying to help where he saw injustice. What Alex was doing to Petey wasn't right. This gave Jonathan Kent some pause. 
Martha broke the silence. We don't know why the Lord blessed you with such strength, though maybe it's to help people like that little boy, Petey. Jonathan did not let her speculate further. Perhaps, but even still, the Peterson boy is badly hurt. Clark did not need reminding. The horror of what he had done would never escape him. He had made a friend in Pete Ross that day, but at the cost of Alex's arm. Clark swore to himself not to cause such unnecessary harm again, as long as he could help it. But the reputation he earned by defending Petey was enough. After that, schoolyard fights would break themselves up whenever Clark Kent arrived. The kids began to mostly think of Clark as a gentle giant, a bit slow in the head, but harmless if you stayed out of his way. They didn't know he could hear them whispering. He tried not to listen, but he could always hear whatever they said about him. It was rarely positive. All the way through their last week of high school, the crowds would easily part for Clark, Lana, and Pete as they walked through. Lana and Pete were chatting about their excitement to be graduating. Clark was distracted by his dreams that morning. He couldn't shake the foreboding sense of not knowing what would become of his life after graduation. Are you even listening, Clark? Clark was not paying attention. He turned to Lana's waiting gaze. What was that? I said that it's official. My parents are throwing a graduation night barbecue, and my mom wants your mom to bring her potato salad. Clark nodded in affirmation, but he was distracted. Having caught a glimpse of Alex Peterson in his atrophied arm, Clark wished he could make it up to him. Years later, without Alex's knowing, Clark sent him regular checks to ease Alex's expenses. But it never assuaged Clark's guilt. He snapped from his thoughts with a sudden ringing. The morning bell announced that it was time for class. The bustle of the day carried Clark through without another thought of his dream or worry about the future. It wasn't until after dinner, as Martha was making adjustments to his graduation robes, that Clark was reminded of his unusual past. Martha stepped back to admire Clark in his hat and gown. When without a thought for it, she remarked, Oh, Clark, your parents would have been so proud. By the furrow in Clark's face, Martha knew she had made a mistake by saying this. It was not the custom of the Kents to discuss Clark's parents unprompted. It was a subject matter they preferred to dance around whenever it was breached. The planned response was to avoid details. Should young Clark ever ask them, the answer was always the same. They were good Christian people. They died in a car accident. I do believe they were driving a Ford. Yes, it was a blue Ford. And once that was said, Martha had an uncanny way of changing the subject matter. Clark never felt it was right to press for more information. This convenient denial of facts had somehow worked for nearly two decades. The Kents had managed to make a loving home for Clark, providing him with all the security of having a caring family, even if Clark knew nothing of the family he was born to. But that night, as she stared at Clark in his newly fitted graduation robes, Martha knew she would not so easily avoid the topic of his parents now that she had been the one to bring them up. Clark ventured to ask, Will you tell me about my parents? He did not expect the question to bring such a chill to the room. Martha and Jonathan exchanged a long and dreadful look with one another. Finally, Jonathan broke the silence. Son, there are some things you should probably know about your parents. As he searched for words, Martha interrupted. There's no point in only telling him. She briskly walked out of the room and up the stairs. Jonathan tried to gather himself and began again. You see, son, when you were a baby, we found you. The shock must have been apparent on Clark's face. Jonathan only became more uncomfortable as he attempted to explain. 
We never wanted to lie to you, Clark, but we never actually knew your parents. Clark reminded him that they had mentioned this in the past, that they had never met Jonathan's nephew before he and his wife had died in the car wreck. But Jonathan furrowed his brow and struggled to say, That's just it, Clark. I've never had a nephew. We made it up. There never was a car wreck. We found you. You found me? Where? Jonathan stammered for words, but before finding them, Martha came downstairs and back into the room. She blurted out, You fell from the sky, Clark. Like an angel. Fallen from the heavens. This was nothing like what Clark expected. He opened his mouth to begin to say something, but the words would not come out. His entire reality was spinning, and though his life had never been anything you might call normal, this news was a shock. Martha didn't wait for Clark to orient himself. We found you with this. She jutted her arm out toward him, holding a small object wrapped in an old rag. Clark took the bundle from her, opening it to reveal an unusual crystal shard. The crystal seemed to put off a soft glow. Touching it for the first time, Clark could not deny her words. A tingling sense started at his fingertip and rippled through him. He knew it was true. He had come from the stars. After this revelation was accepted by Clark, the remainder of the evening was spent reassuring his grandparents, telling them they had done the right thing, that he forgave them for keeping their secret, and that it was all for the best. When Jonathan and Martha were calmed enough to retire to bed for the night, Clark slipped out the back door and through the field to Lana's house next door. Her bedroom light was still on. As gently as he could, Clark attempted to toss the tiniest pebble at her window. He had seen it done in movies, but it proved more difficult in practice. His pebble accidentally broke a hole in the glass that was immediately followed by a startled scream. Lana looked out the window to see Clark looking back up, offering only an apologetic shrug. He waited, listening to the small commotion indoors as Lana attempted to explain the broken window and excuse herself outside. Clark, what are you doing out here? You nearly got me into loads of trouble. Clark apologized and rushed straight into explaining to Lana all he had just learned. As he spoke, he could see Lana's mind racing, putting pieces together. Oh my God, Clark, when we were babies, a meteor fell in your north field. But that wasn't a meteor, Clark. It was you. And that was just after they blew up that comet that was going to hit the Earth. Clark remembered learning about the comet. At the time, it was feared that it would kill everyone on Earth. So the nations of the world came together to destroy it. For the months that followed its destruction, its debris descended in meteor showers, with the occasional meteor not burning up in the atmosphere and crashing down like the one that landed in the Kent's northern field. I came from a comet? Clark could hardly believe the words as they came out of his mouth. Lana wanted to offer him some kind of reassurance. While Clark was in doubt, all of this seemed rather plausible to her and actually made a rather good explanation for Clark's unusual abilities. But it wasn't something she knew how to say. Instead, for the very first time, she reached over, took Clark's hand into her own, and held it as he gazed into the stars. When Clark felt her touch, it was an exhilaration that both grounded him and filled him with fear. He did not want to hurt Lana, but he did not want her to let go either. So he just held his hand still, and turned his eyes to her loving face. He hoped the moment would last. Lana gazed into Clark's eyes, hoping he would reach out and kiss her. Eventually, she broke the silence.
What are you going to do? He looked away and stared into the distance. I can feel the crystal calling me to go north. This was not the response Lana had hoped for. But she asked about the crystal instead. They looked at it together, passing it back and forth as it glimmered in their hands. They dragged the moment on as long as they could until Lana's mother called her back inside. Two nights later, after the graduation barbecue, Lana and Clark found themselves back at the same spot. Clark picked up the conversation Lana had been avoiding. I can't stay, Lana. This time, Lana turned away to stare toward the north. I know, but I keep getting the feeling you want to leave right now. I'm leaving tonight. The sureness in his voice made her heart ache. Why not wait until morning? I'm too excited. I already haven't slept in days. I doubt I'm going to get any sleep tonight. I might as well start while everyone else is sleeping. She knew he wasn't going to be persuaded, but wished there were more to it. Finally, she gave up her protest and returned his expectant gaze. Again, she took his hands into her own. This time, she didn't wait for it. Lana knew that only she could make this happen. She leaned forward, onto her toes, and kissed Clark gently on the lips. For him, it might as well have been an eternity. Of all the moments Clark felt time slow down, this was a moment he wanted time to stop altogether. After their kiss inevitably ended too soon, he took a few minutes to say goodbye to Lana, Martha, and Jonathan, and left Smallville on foot. Taking only the clothes he wore and the crystal he was given, Clark followed the glowing stone as his guide. It called to him from deep inside his own heart, urging him northward. Thank you for listening. I'm Isaac Bluefoot. Sunnabelle is written and produced by myself. This story was inspired by the Superman and DC comics and characters originally created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, with additional contributions by Bill Finger and John Sakella. Manuscript editing assistance by Trisha Reel. Music in this episode was made by Vortex, David Hillowitz, Mellow C, Blue Dot Sessions, Daniel Birch, Cambo, Chad Crouch, Ben Pegley, Dilating Times, Poddington Bear, and Life Stoles. See the episode notes for details. For more of my work, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com, a game like nothing else. And be sure to listen to the next episode, Chapter 2, Fortress of Solitude. <laughs>